And so I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, well over 50,000 this year. You hear some some of these really high targets, and it is hard to uh, put those aside. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin capital of the world. Holy shit. Elon Musk has put Bitcoin in his profile. What does this mean? I don't know. All waiting for clarity. But uh, it was nice to see a, what was it, like a $6,000 candle this morning. Could be some big stuff bubbling. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by The Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got my monthly macro update with the amazing Lynn Alden. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. Okay, today we're going to kick off with BlockFi, and I've been telling you for the last few weeks about their big announcement, which happened before Christmas, that BlockFi is imminently launching a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card. I've been very, very excited about this. Excited by the idea that you can stack sats with every single card purchase. And with BlockFi's card, you will be able to earn a market-leading 1.5% rewards rate in Bitcoin on all card purchases. The waitlist registration is open for all registered BlockFi clients. So if you want to join the priority list, then you just need to open up a BlockFi account. There is a public waitlist which is going to open very soon as well. If you are interested in checking this out, then head over to BlockFi, but do your own research first. And that is at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And it is the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. You want to know why, right? Why Kraken? Well, they are consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. And as I tell you all the time, security is really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So look, if you've got an issue and you reach out to Kraken, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever that issue is, they're going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. So... Whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app, so you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin, and you can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so onto the show today, and I have the amazing Lynn Alden back. I know you all love her. I love her too. She's amazing, and she is here to do our monthly macro review. So, since the last time Lynn was on, Bitcoin went on quite the tear. It hit $42,000 a couple of weeks ago, and since then has been consolidating, looking pretty stable in the 30k range before the Elon thing today, which sent it straight back up. Now, while Bitcoin had been cooling off, the big story in the markets this week certainly and for the last couple of weeks has been regarding Wall Street bets and GameStop. I don't believe anyone has not seen what crazy shit has been going on there. Now, the story came out of a subreddit in that Wall Street bets people were picking highly shorted stocks and buying them in huge numbers. And this led to a massive short squeeze with GameStop shooting up from about $16 to over $460 in a couple of weeks. And then everything went super crazy yesterday with Robinhood closing the ability to buy 
GameStop, and we've all been a bit suspicious about what this is. Now, this happened after my interview, so some of this is covered with Lynn, um, but I will also be covering this further. I'm actually going to make a defiance show about it all, so you want to keep an eye out for that. But I did get Lynn's perspective on everything that was been happening here. Also, she recently did an economic analysis of Ethereum. That article is super interesting. It's worth reading. I question her on that as well. Um, but as I said, this was recorded a few days ago, so the Robin Hood story has gone a little bit crazy since then. Anyway, onto the show. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. And also, I've got a brand new show out in Defiance. Go and check that out. It's about the end of the drug war. It's really interesting. It's produced by Tom. You can check that out at defiance.news. Have a great weekend, and I will see you all later next week. Lynn, I know it's end of January, but happy new year. Yeah, you too. Did you have a good break? Uh, yeah, pretty good. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. So last time we spoke, uh, Bitcoin had just set an all-time high, twenty about twenty-two thousand. We were at when we last spoke. It was back in yeah, I forget uh, the exact number, but yeah, sometime in December. So it must have been a lot lower. Yeah, and then we ran up to forty-two thousand, and then we jumped down to like twenty, twenty-eight and a half, twenty-nine. Now we're uh, quite comfortably back around thirty-four and a half thousand ish. How do you read all this? What's your take on all this? Well, if you look at a lot of indicators, it was kind of near-term overbought by a number of indicators. And so it's not really surprising to see. We've also seen somewhat of a bounce in the dollar. Uh, and so, you know, basically, there, you know, there might be a slight kind of risk off in, in some of these markets. So I, I think that's healthy. And, it, you know, for example, one, one thing you pointed out last time is like, uh, I think you asked, like, are, are, do I miss, you know, going all in on it? And that's the type of thing why I, I prefer to kind of distribute you know, in a couple of different asset classes. So when we get that those volatility events, uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's more easily manageable. Yeah. Well, I am all in. <laughs> I'm I'm all in and more. Um, but that's that suits me. I mean, I read I read your reports. They're excellent, by the way. Um, if you listen to this and you haven't checked out Lynn's reports, go in the show notes. You should check them out. They're amazing. Um, but for me, it would be far too complicated to have uh, such a diverse portfolio. I wouldn't even know where to start with managing it. It's just much easier to have uh, to have one asset. Uh, it does put a lot of risk, but you know, I'm uh, I like a bit of risk. Anyway, look, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, I do want to talk about the general market stuff because you always do an amazing job of explaining what's going on. But I do want to talk about Ethereum because <laughs> you've uh, you've kind of created some enemies, not not on purpose. You've done one of the most probably the one of the most detailed uh, write ups of Ethereum, which uh, very very good and. I've also read the reply from the bankless team, but I do want to touch that. But let's start. Uh, let's start with the macro stuff. So, from your side, kind of what's going on? What are you looking at right now? Well, there's a couple of different things. I mean, one is we're starting to see, you know, extraordinarily high levels of speculation in markets. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, for example, if you look at, you know, the, the valuations of unprofitable tech stocks, if you look at in the U.S. small trader call option buying, uh, you know, kind of Wall Street bets like Robinhood style. And that's just basically off the charts. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, you have to pretty much go back to the to like 1999 to find something any anything kind of similar. Uh, and if you look at the put to call ratio, uh, that's extraordinarily uh, skewed, uh, you know, towards calls. And so basically, there's there's basically multiple indicators showing that people are kind of going all in. Uh, we're also seeing margin debt go up a lot, and so people are just kind of taking leverage, kind of option or 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 leverage-based bets uh, that the that assets are likely to keep going up. Uh, and so those are always kind of tricky times because, you know, we are having kind of a currency issue at the moment. I mean, people, you know, they, they can go into assets 
or they can go into, for, for example, treasuries or bank accounts that are yielding less than inflation, right? So there's basically rock in a hard place. But whenever you get to a period where it's kind of over leveraged or overbought, uh, the amount of risk in the environment goes up, you know, for having some sort of volatility event or something like that. And we're also seeing a little bit of a bounce in the dollar compared to other currencies. And so if you look at, you know, over the past, say, year, the dollar has been very inversely correlated to most risk assets. Whenever the dollar is falling, they're going up. And whenever the dollar kind of has like a, uh, you know, kind of a sideways consolidation or a little bit of a bounce, then you, that's when you also tend to see a consolidation or a little bit of a pullback in some of those risk assets. And so that's something I'm monitoring at the moment. All right. A couple of questions there, because some people listening might not know. Can you just explain what a put and a call is so people listening understand and then talk about what that ratio is that you talked about? Yeah, so a call option is basically a contract where you, uh, you know, you basically agree that someone will 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 sell you shares at a certain price. And so, the, if it gets to expiration without the the uh, share price getting to your target price, uh, that option expires worthless. Uh, and so, it's not something you want. It's not something you buy and hold. It's something where you're making a specific bet that you know a stock or an ETF is going to go up to a certain price by a certain date. And so, you know, they're mostly short dated options. There are ones that stretch out to a year or more, but the vast majority of them are, are pulled forward to days, weeks, or months. And a put will be the opposite. You can basically, it, it's another way of shorting a stock. Essentially, you can basically bet that the the share price is going to go down by a certain period of time. But of course, uh, a lot of people use that as hedging. So they might be long the market. And if they want to kind of de-risk a little bit, instead of selling their positions and generating capital gains, they could have a small put position to kind of offset some of their, their long positions. So they tend to be a little bit more sophisticated used. Uh, and you can, over time, look at, there's a couple things. One is you can look at the percentage of the volume that's being kind of moved by small traders buying call options, which is right now it's off its record highs. And then also you can look at the put to call ratio to see how many people are buying puts compared to how many people are buying calls. And it tends to be a contrarian indicator. So if a lot of people are buying calls, that ends up being a good time to buy puts. And if a lot of people are buying puts, that ends up being a good time to buy buy calls or simply go long the market. How do they differ from futures? Uh, because they're they're it's a basically more of a leverage bet. So futures are you're you're betting on the direction of something and then you can lever it up. Whereas this, you're you're betting on um like it's a contract that says, for example, let's say a share price is a hundred dollars right now, and I can say I want um uh, call options that are for a strike price of a hundred and twenty three months out, and I might pay five dollars. And if that if that you know share price goes up to like a hundred and fifty. I, I made a lot of multiple on the little five dollar I put in, uh, right. but if it if it doesn't get the say uh, you know it closes at one hundred and twelve dollars three months from now, so it never got up there. My five dollars then is just completely vanished, and so you know it, they can be used sophisticated because you can have a very small position. They can actually be used to to reduce risk if you use them kind of in a in a sophisticated way because instead of you know putting a large chunk of your portfolio in something, you can have a small bet that something's going to ba- basically be asymmetric, but if if they're used kind of just willy nilly and you just kind of just you know uh, just just go all in with these they call yolo calls right you just kind of say I'm gonna put like you know a third of my net worth in like you know these call options that either can ruin a portfolio or you can go up you know 10x and that's the kind of speculation we're seeing at the moment. The the dollar thing is quite interesting as well because um, I'm looking at the chart here and back in March 20 uh, it was 86 pence to the dollar. And now we're at about uh, 73 pence. 
Uh, for me, as somebody who's most of my clients are in America, that's actually not very good for me. I've lost, you know, every month I've, I'm essentially from that point. I mean, that was a bit of a spike, but I've lost about 10% of my income by the fall in the value of the, the dollar. Um, what is actually going on with the dollar? You said there's a bit of a bounce right now. Yeah, so if you look at, you know, if you look at uh, specifically this past, say, month or so. Uh, so if you kind of go back to the whole year, so we had that big spike in March. Uh, and so the dollar index, which is the way I, you know, that's because you're comparing basically one currency to another currency, whereas I'm referring to the dollar index, which is basically comparing the okay. dollar to a basket of currencies. Uh, the euro is the biggest component, uh, but the, the pound is in there, the yen is in there. So that that peaked as something like 103 back in March during the heart of the liquidity shock and, and, and pandemic. And then when the Federal Reserve kind of released the floodgates, you know, they released the Kraken of, of liquidity, that came down pretty sharply. And so that fell back in the, into the, you know, the high 90s. And then it had some pretty disorderly declines. It, you know, it touched down into the to the upper 80s uh, at one point. And it had a couple of consolidations. So, for example, this past summer, you know, so it went down in the summer, but then it leveled off for a little bit. And that's where we got some kind of correction in some of these risk assets. You know, we saw we started to see oil stocks roll back down. We started to see all sorts of kind of things kind of go sideways a little bit. Uh, and then it kind of had another sharp decline, the, the dollar. And so that was another boom for risk assets. And lately we've been seeing again, you know, it's back in the in the low 90s. So we're seeing a little bit of a bounce in a consolidation here. And that's normal because things just don't go straight up or down forever. Uh, but that's something that people can be aware of if they're trying to understand why certain positions might have some turbulence. So it sounds like to me you say there's a lot of leverage, there's a lot of um, margin debt, there's uh, this, this ratio of the put to calls. So it seems to imply that you're saying there's a lot of risk taken. Is this a typical thing early in the year or is this a response to something else? Uh, so if you look at the charts, this is actually pretty unprecedented. Uh, okay. You know, it seems to be tied to the massive amount of stimulus. And so if you look back prior to March 2020, you know, we started to see some overheating back in, in kind of late 2019, but it wasn't very it wasn't very significant. Uh, and then it you know it got it all got kind of wrecked uh, in March of 2020. But then in the in the months that followed, when you had stimulus checks go out and you had all all of this kind of you know money supply go up 26% year over year, uh, then you started to see this massive kind of vertical boom in uh, you know the, the the amount of call options uh, and the amount of kind of uh, penny stocks being traded pretty much anywhere you look for uh, you know ways to quantify how much speculation is happening all of those just went vertical to, to places we haven't seen for at least 10 years and in some cases all all-time highs so we're just in crazy season still yeah pretty much <laughs> when does this end it feels like we're heading we, we are heading towards some kind of financial implosion well, that's always the tricky thing. For example, if, if people were, were monitoring what was happening in the late 90s, there are multiple parts where it was excessive, and then it got even more excessive. Uh, and so you never kind of know ahead of time when exactly it's going to roll over. It could be that you know stimulus stops coming out or, or transforms from, for example, stimulus checks to infrastructure or something like that. And so it's kind of a slower money that doesn't just kind of enter into Robinhood accounts. Uh, you know, basically, there there could be various shocks along the way uh, that just kind of exhaust the amount of you know money being poured into markets. Uh, and it's one of those things where while it's going up, it's a virtuous cycle, so it feeds on itself and kind of pushes higher than you think. But then, if that were to reverse for any reason, that can you know plummet pretty hard. And you know, I think it's important to separate you know what's going to happen with kind of high quality assets that are appropriately priced compared to some things that are kind of just bid up from pure speculation. We're also seeing uh you know Wall Street bets for example they're targeting 
stocks that are highly shorted, uh, which is, you know, it's actually a pretty smart strategy. You know, I, the SEC might eventually be looking at that sort of thing because it's kind of coordinated, you know, behavior in markets. Uh, but, you know, for example, if you look at the company GameStop, which is a, hmm. you know, kind of a classic, uh, you know, retail kind of, you know, it's 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 being displaced by the digital distribution of, of video games and things like that. Uh, but they ha- it was a highly shorted stock. And it's another contrarian indicator that stocks that are too highly shorted end up, you know, if they if they have a bounce, it means that some of those people shorting it have to cover their shorts, meaning they have to buy the shares. And so, for example, if you look back a decade ago, Volkswagen briefly became the most valuable company in the world yeah, because its that. share prices, yeah, it's a massive short squeeze. And we're seeing like a smaller scale, but something similar with GameStop, where it's up dramatically because all these people are, are piled into it on the short side. And then, you know, a bunch of these Redditors saw that and said, well, let's just all buy calls and let's all buy shares and just drive the price up and force them to keep covering. And then it becomes a self, you know, then then even more people have to cover and then people can keep buying until it kind of hits a, a breaking point and kind of just has this vertical blow off top. So what what would you say right now then is appropriately priced? Like if people were listening to this and thinking where to invest, I'm obviously telling people in terms of Bitcoin. Um people might not have the, the sophistication that you have but like where are things appropriately priced because i think stocks right now are a very hard thing for somebody who isn't experienced in the market to come and invest in i think from like a say a 5 year perspective i think a number of non us equities are reasonably priced and in general both in the us and elsewhere stocks that are more on the value side of the spectrum are are uh, you know reasonably priced, and you know that's where people will debate whether or not they should be reason- like should they be cheap or should they be you know uh, or are they like are they dying? For example, you can have something called a value trap where everyone says, oh, look, it's cheap, it's got low price to book, low price to earnings, uh, but then those earnings just kind of bleed out and the industry's dying and then it's over. Or you know if you look back in, in history, if you look at high quality companies when they get cheap, that tends to be a good time to buy. Uh, and so I'm seeing that some of the more cyclical industrial type of things, they tend to be pretty cheap at the moment. And anything that's kind of outside the United States uh, in the form of the equity market. So, for example, you know, there are really high quality Japanese stocks that are trading pretty cheaply. There are emerging market stocks that are trading pretty cheaply. Uh, that's where the areas are tend to be because a lot of capital has kind of concentrated in U.S. equity markets. Now, it's, it's different for real estate because, di- because real estate is not liquid. And so a lot of those markets that have fairly cheap equity markets tend to have high, highly priced real estate markets. And so specifically the equity markets in some of these non-U.S. places, uh, you know, are more reasonably priced. You know, a, a number of commodities, I think, are still reasonably priced. We've had a big run up. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, pullbacks or consolidations. But from like a historical perspective, compared to other things like, you know, U.S. equities or something like that, commodities tend to be pretty cheap at the moment. And of course, I'm, I remain bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, that's, you know, you can't necessarily call that expensive or cheap. Uh, but as kind of a percentage of, you know, what I think it could grow into, I would still classify that as, you know, a, a positive asymmetric bet. Have you bought any more Bitcoin? Yeah, I've been dollar cost averaging a little bit. Good, good, good. While, while uh, Michael Saylor, million dollar cost average in, and was it 10 million he put in the other day? Okay. What I think about, so. What about in response to the Biden administration? What are you seeing in response to, well, what are you seeing with regards to policy from then? How are you reacting to that? What can we take from their administration so far? Obviously, we've seen there's a potential for huge uh, stimulus plans. Um, I've also read about um, them cancelling this pipeline. Um, that's going to have an impact on jobs in the oil industry. What read are you taking from like the early days of the Biden administration? It's pretty early to tell so far, but basically they're looking for kind of 
a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. And so that includes, you know, faster money up front. And then they want to get into more infrastructure stuff. And that includes green energy. Uh, that includes all sorts of things. He also, I mean, they're, they're moving to kind of reduce uh, the amount of oil that can be drilled on federal lands. You know, last I checked, that's something like 10% of U.S. production. But there's there's always kind of like nuanced stories. So, for example, a lot of the, the drillers already have permits to drill on federal land. And so just because they don't issue new permits doesn't mean that, you know, tomorrow drilling on federal land stops. It means that it kind of, you know, over the next kind of three to four years, uh, that if they if they were to keep that freeze in place that whole time, that would drop off over time. And therefore, U.S. energy production uh, would maybe level out or decline because they'd only be able to drill on, on privately owned land. Uh, and so that's that's kind of one thing I'm watching. You know, you, you mentioned the pipeline as well. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the biggest news that if, as it affects the dollar or markets is what they're going to do with stimulus, because so far the United States has done more stimulus as a percentage of GDP than most other countries. Uh, and they still seem to feel the need to do more. Uh, and you know, because there are if you look at, you know, who's who's kind of impacted, there are still tons of people out of jobs. And so that that creates, you know, a social political aspect. Uh, we've seen, for example, rising tensions, uh, you know, different types of populism, both on the left and the right. People express their their you know frustration in different ways. And so, you know, they're looking to do another round of stimulus checks and then pile on top of that over time, more and more kind of infrastructure or green energy things. And so a couple of things to watch is that, the you know, the Senate is really split because it's it's 50 people that caucus with the Democrats, 50 people that caucus with the Republicans. And then in that situation, the vice president is the tiebreaker vote. But there are, for example, a handful of Democrats that lean more conservative. And okay. so it's not like, you know, we don't, for example, have, you know, the, the progressive wing versus the conservative wing. It's not like, you know, the, the, the left side of the spectrum is completely in control of the Senate. It's actually kind of a centrist Senate. And so it's going to be interesting to see uh, what Joe Biden is able to get through that that group. Another interesting thing I found in your report, which I read, and I don't want to tell, take too much from it because I think other people should go and subscribe and, and, and read it. But at the same time, when you talked about COVID or you talked about post-COVID, that it might actually, because people talk about this old oh, return to the return to normal, but you talked about the fact that we might have a fundamentally different economy. We won't essentially, we may not return to the same old world. I think one of the big impacts is obviously in terms of geography. People can live feel like they can live anywhere, feel like they can uh, set up business anywhere. We've seen what's happening with the mayor of Miami drawing people in. I think I just read today Peter Thiel bought two properties there. We're also seeing this migration of people to Austin and to uh, to Wyoming. And what other things are you looking at in terms of like a post-COVID world? What other kind of dynamic changes are you expecting or look, let's say looking out for? Yeah, it depends on what time frame you look for. And so, you know, the, the, the harsh reality from the beginning is that the, the amount of jobs to get back to the, the number of jobs we had uh, in recessions, that normally takes years. And this was a bigger decline than most. Uh, and different countries, of course, have different metrics. So, for example, the United States had a, a, a pretty sharp decline in jobs. Uh, and so it's going to take a long time to work that back. And so, you know, in the meantime, there's a lot of tensions, you know, especially uh, because we've seen kind of that, you know, that they keep calling it the K-shaped recovery, where if you can work from home, if you work in tech, you know, if you basically if you have a higher income situation, you're generally pretty okay. Whereas if you were working in a blue collar kind of hands-on capacity, uh, you tended to suffer more. Or if you were running a small business that, that was reliant on having a physical presence, uh, and so we're seeing kind of a, a somewhat permanent destruction in small businesses. So for example, it's not like every restaurant that closed is going to reopen. So that that's kind of a really big challenge there. And then yeah, beyond that. 
we are seeing, you know, as people can work from home more, we're seeing less of an interest in, in working in kind of these, these key hubs like New York or San Francisco and more willingness to move to secondary cities uh, or in some cases more more rural areas. But especially, you know, those secondary cities that, that are, have, you know, far cheaper, uh, you know, places to live, uh, while also because of things like Zoom and, and other things like that, they still have full access uh, for the most part. Uh, we're also probably seeing some impacts on business travel for similar reasons, where leisure travel is likely to bounce back because that you know that's not something that can be replicated on Zoom. Whereas business travel, at least a percentage of it, could be displaced. And so there you know there's always people going to want to go to conferences and network in person, or you know go to business dinners, you know basically interface with executives real time. Uh, but uh, there's a percentage of of kind of you know kind of more kind of grindy corporate work that can be done remotely. Well, yeah, I mean, I used to travel relentlessly with work prior to COVID. Uh, every other month I would be away for two to three weeks. I'm certainly not returning to that, to the, the additional costs I've adjusted. I think once you've adjusted your business and you've you know come to terms with this new world, like why why bring back that, that cost? I mean, I do want to travel, but not like I used to. Are we seeing anything in terms of inflation numbers? Because I know here in the UK we aren't seeing we haven't, we haven't seen a huge growth in the inflation numbers, but we do have record borrowing. We're at, I think the last month was the third biggest since like World War Two. But what we are seeing is things like, for example, house prices here seem to be going up quite significantly. Are you seeing anything in inflation? Is there ways that government are hiding inflation numbers? Uh, so we're primarily seeing asset price inflation. And so anything that's kind of considered like a financial asset, like, you know, real estate, equities, you know, uh, digital assets in this case, all, all sorts of different assets uh, that people can own and consider kind of a long-term financial thing, uh, those have basically been skyrocketing. And so, for example, if you look at, you know, Apple stock, for example, uh, that's not just in terms of price, but in terms of actual valuation, like price-to-earnings ratios or price-to-sales ratios, is far more expensive than it was 12 to 18 months ago. And so basically people have just reevaluated that and being willing to pay a much higher price for it because they don't want to be in cash or they think it's going to keep going higher, whatever the case may be, depending on the, on the trader in question. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're starting to see some inflation around the margin. So, for example, we're seeing uh, commodity prices start to wake up. And so, you know, copper's up to like something like an eight-year high. Uh, iron's up. Uh, beef is at all-time highs and twice as expensive as it was two years ago. Back then, two years ago, it was also at all-time highs. And so it's actually, it's not like it was a, a big dip that it increased from. It was already expensive two years ago, and it just doubled. Uh, and so we are starting to see some of that. We're also seeing uh, the, the cost of shipping yeah. on a container ship. Yeah, that it basically went vertical. If you look at the price to ship mm-hmm. you know, container ships from China to UK or to the United States, uh, that absolutely went vertical because of a shortage. And so we're starting to see kind of a combination of supply chain limitations running into the fact that money supply increased by 10, 15, 20% or more, depending on what country you're talking about, we are starting to see that. The one thing that's really holding down, or the two things that are really holding down official CPI are one is that oil and gas prices are still quite low. And those are the, you know, that that commodity market is far larger than other commodities. And so that, and that kind of trickles into all sorts of manufactured goods and things like that. And so as long as that, you know, until that were to tick up, that can help keep uh, inflation modest. And then two, because we're seeing kind of a destruction in some of these service sector jobs, uh, we don't see a lot of people just kind of spending super freely. Now, you see a subset of people speculating on markets if they're already comfortable, but you don't see a lot of people that are kind of, you know, living paycheck to paycheck going out and buying stuff because they're having enough trouble as it is paying rent. And so we're not seeing kind of that that really broad 
uh, you know, uptick in energy prices or general spending, but we're seeing it kind of in all the places where it, it otherwise can show up, like like financial assets and X energy uh, commodities. Okay, I've got two questions. Um, I, I saw your mention of the um, the shipping cost, but I also saw an article in the UK that the cost of shipping a container from the US, uh, sorry, from China to the UK, I think um, it was it's gone up from eighteen hundred pounds to around ten thousand. Uh, which is a yep. massive increase. And I specifically read about um, a lady in her business that she has her light lighting business. She has the light fixtures uh, manufactured in China. And essentially she can't make a profit now, um, which kind of like kind of blew my mind. What it, so first question is why are these shipping co- costs gone up? But the second, uh, second question I have is just a separate one. When you talked about Apple stocks and people putting money into Apple stocks, Look, I, I don't trade uh, stocks and shares. Uh, I've looked at it before a few years ago, and what I would do is I would spend time you know, reading the Financial Times and looking on websites and trying to find tips, and I would do a little bit of research, try and understand what is cheap and what is overvalued. With things like Robinhood, have we essentially removed the friction to investing in stocks, and have we essentially flooded the market with lots of inexperienced investors we now have tiktok investors which blows my mind and essentially is it a much more immature market now and therefore is this why the prices are being inflated uh yeah definitely to some extent so for for example if you look at over the past decade we didn't see a lot of retail participation in markets uh you know there's a lot of institutional there's a lot of corporations buying their own shares back but we didn't really see that frenzy the last time we saw that kind of the retail frenzy uh was in the late 90s uh, and so for the first time, we started to see that. And that started to show up a little bit in 2018, 2019, because as you point out, Robinhood reduced the friction. And that, of course, spread to, to you know, now it's it's pretty common, you know, at least in the U.S. and some other countries to have uh, uh, zero commission trades. And so you see some of the smaller investors kind of flipping around in stocks a lot more uh, than they used to. So you started to see the number of trades go up in 2018, 2019. Uh, but 2020 went, went completely vertical. They, they basically like quadrupled or quintupled. Like it wasn't say a 50% increase. It was like a multiple increase. Uh, and so that's the combination of that frictionless access point plus, you know, just, you know, basically this flood of liquidity coming out, people getting checks, and then they kind of treat the checks differently than if they had earned them. It's just kind of, if you if you just kind of get this thing, you're like, well, I mean, the market's going up. I don't want to be left behind. And so you, you put in the market. And so we're kind of seeing some of that behavior. And your other question about shipping containers, uh, so that's a, kind of a niche thing. And so there, there are people that are uh, experts on the shipping industry that can kind of dive into that more than I have. I haven't done a deep dive on that particular issue, uh, but my understanding is it's basically related to supply limitations of, okay. of those containers. Uh, and so, you you know, it could have been COVID related. Uh, it could have been that, that supply chain are reorganizing. I don't have the specific uh, reason, but when you, when you have that bottleneck, uh, and then you have that, you know, that demand is kind of comes back and you have kind of money supply growing pretty substantially. Uh, if you have an inelastic supply, then the price can just go up 3x, 4x. Uh, and that's kind of what we've seen. Crazy. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about Bitcoin and the macro side of things. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, we're going to kick off with Casa. As you know, they are the very fucking best in Bitcoin security. I've been a customer for over eight months now. I absolutely love it. So much peace of mind that my Bitcoin is protected from me doing stupid things, which I'm really capable of. But also, in-person attacks, device failure, and all the things that can get you in trouble with your Bitcoin. 
I am protected. I love Casa. You should be checking Casa out for your Bitcoin. And you know what? They've got a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is only going to cost you $10 a month. If you want Casa Platinum, you will get their three or five multi-sig. Now, this is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders. It does also come at a really great price. And their full service offering, Casa Diamond, which will get you a personalized, customized security review. They will help you with your inheritance planning. And of course, you get their best in class in security. There is no better time to get your shit together with your Bitcoin security and have the peace of mind that I have. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, my newest sponsor, they've been with me nearly a month now, it's Exodus Wallet. Have you checked them out yet? I'm absolutely loving Exodus Wallet. Now, I am increasingly running my company on Bitcoin. I get paid in Bitcoin. I pay people in Bitcoin. And I needed a wallet that I could use at the end of each month that I could settle all my balances with. And when Exodus reached out to me, I was intrigued. I checked it out. And do you know what? I talk about this a lot. UX is important to me and they've crushed it. So it's the perfect wallet for me. I'm mainly using their desktop wallet, uh, but they also have a very cool mobile wallet too. Now, if you want to find out more, just Google Exodus, head over to exodus.io or search the Google or Apple app stores for Exodus. And this week, we're going to be finishing with sportsbet.io. Now, I love these guys because I love football and I love having a little wager on the games. And with Sportsbet Dio, it's really cool because they accept Bitcoin and they're doing everything they can to promote Bitcoin. They put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Southampton shirt and they are also the betting partner of Arsenal. Now with Sportsbet, they have every market you could possibly want to wager on. They've got football, they've got tennis, they've got US sports, motorsports, they've even got esports. Everything you want is there. And if you're a new customer, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and you can find out more. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about Bitcoin before we get into Ethereum. Um, again, like amazing. Uh, I, I, I felt like Bitcoin over 30,000 has felt fairly stable. I know we had a, a big drop, but I, I still feel, feel like it's been fairly stable. I didn't have any fear myself to sell. My, my dad my dad tends to phone me every couple of days and panic and say, Pete, it's fallen from 42,000 to 30. What's going on? And I'm like, Dad, we were at uh, less than 10,000 a few months ago. But it feels pretty stable. Um, it does also still feel to be very, very much driven by an institutional interest. Grace Galabine, a lot. What's your read on it right now? Yes, yeah, so we started to see a consolidation. You know, we, we had that correction at first and then we started to kind of level out. Uh, and then we had that kind of perfect storm you know, we had a, a number of central bankers or, or officials kind of come out and, you know, say it's associated with legal activity and needs to be clamped down upon. So that, that mm -hmm. probably wasn't great for the narrative for a couple of days. And then we saw uh, inaccurate reporting about the double spend uh, situation, which is mm -hmm. no, not it was just a, a block reorganization that, that kind of got misunderstood by the media. And so that that seemed to have coincided with that really sharp kind of capitulation that we had. And it's been bouncing back. Um, and so it's kind of important to watch. Now, most of the, the, the indicators that are kind of commonplace during these bull markets, they still look reasonably healthy. And so, for example, if you look at the percentage of Bitcoins that haven't moved in over a year, uh, for example, uh, that still indicates kind of mid bull market. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, some of the, the overbought indicators, like, say, market capitalization compared to realized capitalization, those were looking somewhat heated uh, before the correction because, we, you know, we had that really sharp run up from from just December into early January. But they weren't looking, say, like, you know, blow off top kind of, you know, having cycle high. They were just looking kind of like, you know, correction territory. Uh, and so we, we did kind of 
uh, let off some of the steam there and return down to, to levels that it can start building up from again. And of course, you know, it remains to be seen if it's going to happen, but we are still seeing a uh, strong institutional buying. And Grayscale, Grayscale had this thing where they were on a hiatus uh, where they weren't buying. They, hmm, they tend yeah. to do that sometimes. Uh, but they, they started buying again and they've had kind of some record inflows. At the same time, Michael Saylor's, you know, getting ready to host that that conference to basically, you know, uh, shill the idea of Bitcoin uh, to uh, corporate treasuries uh, to basically kind of give his playbook and his pitch on why they should have a, you know, I don't think, you know, that they're going to go all in like he did, but basically kind of like why they should be more like Square and have, you know, Bitcoin on their balance sheet somewhere. Yeah, well, we had another one announced today, and also he's really upset Peter Schiff again. Uh, Peter Schiff's not very happy about this conference that he's going to be doing, but look, it is it is, it is what it is. Um, I, I feel like it's very structurally similar to the market back in 2017. Um, Crypto Cobain uh, put out a chart where it's a very, very similar chart to 2017, this first 30% drop. I feel like the market's yeah, pretty strong, but this increase in FUD is is quite interesting is the volume that's come out because it isn't just with regards to the double spend fad or it isn't just with regards to the central banks but we've seen a, an increase in articles from the likes were well, in the uk the times the guardian the telegraph right and just nonsense articles and we've seen a massive increase in uh, in this and it's really frustrating but i guess sign of the market similar to how you and my replies are full of Voss promotions and elon musk promotions which is it's relentless um, with regards to the Tether stuff, how much have you looked at that? Uh, so I've looked at it pretty significantly. Uh, right. And it's, it's just kind of, it's interesting to watch because that, that came around last time too. I wasn't really uh, active in the, in the, you know, the crypto space back then, but, uh, you know, just from history that came up again. And so we are starting to see that. I've actually, I've gotten so many emails about that, but I basically have a, a template email that I, I just kind of have. So I don't have to, I don't have to rewrite a response every time. Uh, and so that, that kind of shows the amount of kind of uh, fear in the market about that, or at least, a, you know, a segment, because that, that article seems to have gone pretty viral. Uh, that definitely kind of touched a lot of nerves of people. The, uh, the, and, uh, the article that's from an anonymous, per anonymous person who managed to buy the bottom and sell the top. Well, maybe he's buying back now. That's yeah. the thing. You don't know who who's kind of putting out that information. Uh, but basically, you know, what we've seen from Tether is, you know, they, you know, like most stable coins, they claim to be backed. You know what exactly that's backing it is is kind of open up for for questions. Uh, you know it, we're we're seeing the the legal action against them to some extent, um, but it it kind of you know the 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 overall kind of arguments range from the extreme to the mild. So you know the mild cases are are pretty you know acceptable. It's like you know they should be audited. Do they have a hundred percent backing? What does the backing consist of? Uh, things like that, right? So is that something that people should use? But then when you get into kind of the extreme end of the side, it's the, you know, the claim that nothing is going in. They're purely just printing tens of billions of dollars worth of Tether and that that's entirely responsible for, for blowing up the Bitcoin price, even though if you just look over the past year, you know, Grayscale alone pretty much bought as many Bitcoins as were mined that year. And then if you add MicroStrategy and, and PayPal and Cash App and, you know, uh, all these others, uh, that are just kind of buying and putting it into cold storage, that had to come from the existing market, you know, because they bought more than were mined by, by a significant percentage. And so that had to come from existing holders. And so you had that natural kind of supply-demand characteristic. Uh, and so I think it's normal. I think, you know, some degree of FUD is healthy, 
right? Because otherwise you get this euphoria, you get this, you know, you kind of, you kind of pull forward all the gains, you get this blow off top, and then you have this, you know, big problem. But as it, you know, they call it the wall of worry, and it applies to stocks, it applies to pretty much any type of asset that is in a healthy bull market, that it, it goes up, and then you have some concerns, and you have a pullback, and it goes up again, you have more concerns, and people kind of debating about the valuation, debating about the merits of the asset. And we're starting to see that to some extent where, you, you know, have, you know, people are, I'm getting emails about quantum computing, emails about Tether, emails about what if it's banned, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, and some of that is healthy, you know, except when it goes viral and people kind of, you know, panic sell. And we actually saw, for example, you know, when Michael Saylor bought that dip, there was actually another company that that sold uh, a couple million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And oh. they had just bought it like a month ago. Yeah. They made $200,000 they, yeah, so profit. Yeah. So they were, I guess, you know, kind of a weaker hand. That and they and they, I think they cited the the supposed double spend attack without realizing it's just it's a block confirmation issue. Like you, you know, their block reorgs happen, and if you want to have a, a payment be finalized, you have to wait wait a certain number of blocks. Yeah, institutionally weak hands, I call those. Um, I thought that's kind of interesting, but probably the wrong company to be buying Bitcoin if they're going to panic panic in that way. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. I should probably, um, if you've got those templates ready, can I just forward all my emails that I get to you then, and uh, you can reply to them. <laughs> Uh, hopefully not I get the it's same, so many i get the same ones i get the quantum ones i get the same My, uh, today was uh minor centralization i've also been talking to uh mike green did you listen to his show with nick carter yet i got i got the first half i, yeah. I didn't get a chance to see the second half second half is mainly tether i thought it was i thought it was interesting chat yeah i mean the first half that i listened to was was not about kind of is Bitcoin going to be successful? It's more like whether or not it should be successful. I mean, yeah. Mike Mike Green's argument seems to be that it he doesn't want it to be successful. He thinks it would be bad if it were were successful, rather than that he think it won't be. It is kind of a it was more of a moral argument than anything else. Yeah, well, he feels it's a risk to the U.S. dollar. Yeah, he feels it's a risk to the do- dollar. He feels it was uh, uh you know unfairly distributed. He had a number of kind of mm. points that he felt it was. That are more moral uh, in his view, rather than, you know, say math based or 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 kind of a you know an assessment of what the market's going to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I felt like his giveaway was when he said if he'd listened to his wife's uh, opinion, he would be on the same side of the table <coughs> as Nick, which kind of irks back to that uh, height thing in the Righteous Mind, where he talks about people tend to shoot from the hip and then post rationalize. I think he's probably kind of was an indication that he was bit disappointed that he hadn't invested but look is what it is i thought it was a good show okay let's talk about ethereum da, da, da. you uh you dived in took a good look at ethereum so i can imagine uh lynn uh, if you felt like it was a good investment you would invest you're not ideologically opposed to investing like maybe someone like oh, i am i'm just bitcoin only that's it you can't convince me of anything else my assumption is that if you felt like you thought it was a good long-term investment you would Am I wrong? Uh, yeah. Um, so, for example, I think that utility protocols, in some way, are going to be here for a while. Yeah. And so, for example, I'm, I'm, I think the, the the stable coin usage will probably increase over time. You know, there there will be kind of you know different sort of smart contract applications that will likely be here in some form. And then the question is, which ones will stick around? Whether or not their tokens will achieve some sort of moneyness, right? So will they will they kind of be viewed as money, or will they be viewed more like a commodity? And so I kind of just explored that question. And you know, so it's basically if you look at you know the whole digital asset kind of ecosystem, uh, you know, Bitcoin is head and shoulders 
over any other token that's trying to be money. Uh, mm -hmm. So for most of those other ones are, are some cases less than 1% of, of Bitcoin's market capitalization. Sometimes they're say 1.5%. They're all kind of a very, very tiny uh, percentage of the security, the, the, you know, the, the distribution, whatever kind of uh, network effect you want to use to, to measure that. Uh, the only other kind of asset that's in the same ballpark would be Ethereum in the sense mm -hmm. that its market capitalization is sizable. It's still notably lower. The, the amount of kind of uh, volume settled or, or value settled on Ethereum uh, has eclipsed Bitcoin because it's, it's, you know, it's used for those stable coins. So it's used for, you know, it's, 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 its velocity is far higher and therefore it's used for that. And, I, you know, naturally I, I get a lot of emails about Ethereum because, you know, I've, I've explained multiple times why I'm long Bitcoin, why, you know, I have articles on Bitcoin. And so naturally I get a number of questions like, what about Ethereum? Are you going to invest in Ethereum? Do you like Ethereum? And so I was like, let me just like write an article and, and just kind of analyze Ethereum and say my views on it. And so it wasn't say outright negative. I wasn't saying, you know, Ethereum's going to go down. It's going to, it's bad. It's, it's more like, here's some of the pros and cons of Ethereum. And, you know, that I, I think some investors could, you know, put most of their portfolio in Bitcoin and have kind of a side bit in Ethereum. I don't think it's irrational for people that are following that market uh, to do that. I think that would make sense for them. But that it, at, for my case, I haven't seen kind of a, a really good kind of risk reward for Ethereum because it's still, you know, it's it's changing the underlying, you know, mechanism for how the protocol works. They're shifting from proof of work to proof of stake. They're changing their monetary policy. Uh, you know, they're potentially sharding it where they, you know, they have multiple parallel chains that are kind of linked to a beacon chain. Uh, but then they're, you know, now they're looking at, they're doing roll-ups and there's all sorts of different scaling mechanisms because they are running into their, their throughput limit. And so, you know, basically I was just trying to highlight to people that, Sure, it could be a healthy ecosystem. It could take off, uh, but you have to understand the risks there. It's it's not kind of this this more finished product. It's more of this experimental product. And I just didn't want people to kind of, you know, go into an alt season without understanding the risks they get into when they try to trade all of these non-Bitcoin protocols. Yeah, and you know, even in an alt season, people can make money whilst the protocol itself might not have any, you know meaningful long-term usage but the, the term that really stood out when reading your report was that it's a big circular speculative party so firstly i'd like you to I'd obviously want you to explain why you think it's a big circular speculative party but then also in some ways isn't bitcoin a uh, speculative party uh to some extent yeah so so any sort of kind of network effect has that kind of circular notion where the more people use it the, the better it does uh my point with ethereum is that it's it's highly used for leverage uh and kind of these these shorter term bets and so for example if you've seen if you look at you know what's all the money that's locked in DeFi, for example mm -hmm. uh, a lot of that is you have decentralized exchanges and so that's you know that's its own thing uh then you have uh, liquidity or leverage providers for those exchanges. And so some people can deposit stable coins, for example, and collect interest on them. And the other side of that is they're basically borrowing, uh, you know, uh, stable coins at a pretty high interest rate. And then, you know, some of them could be using that for life expenses, but many of them are using it to speculate on different sorts of tokens, using that as, as their, you know, to have a leverage play on different sort of tokens. And especially because some of those tokens are, you know, lower market capitalization altcoins it's got a substantial amount of risk and speculation and so when you're in that bull market you can see you know the amount of leverage builds up 
the, the amount of kind of the, the yields can be high. It's this attractive situation. But if that were to turn down into a kind of an alt season, you know, the, the opposite of that, a bear market in alts, that's where some of that leverage could become very painful. And we saw a hint of that back in March mm-hmm. uh, where you had that liquidity issue and you had some kind of liquidations. But that it's a much higher level now. Uh, the amount of D, uh, uh, money locked in DeFi is far higher. And so if you were to get that kind of a sharp pullback in some of these, you know, even Bitcoin, uh, but let alone if you get Bitcoin and these other ones, and you, if you kind of go into a bear market, uh, that's a more sensitive area that could, that could be impacted. And kind of like how if you look at just equities, so it's not even unique to, to DeFi. If you look at equities, those periods where the bull market's happening and the margin's going up, that feels really good while it's happening. And it's just you have to make sh- sure that, you know, when when that kind of then that party ends and it's turned over, uh, you know, some things end up being steady and they kind of you know they correct, but then they bounce back. And other things that were mostly bid up due to margin or due to other things, they have a tendency to suffer more. And so you know, we'll see what happens. For example, you know, back in in the previous bull run, Ethereum outperformed to the upside and then you know uh, underperformed to the downside on the, on the other direction. And we'll see if that happens again, or you know, every cycle kind of is going to have its own unique characteristics. Yeah, there's a couple of other things I found quite interesting. A couple of other quotes from you. Uh, firstly, that it's more expensive to run lines of code on Ethereum, let's say Amazon Web Services. So I thought that was kind of interesting because essentially you're pay- you're paying the premium for this decentralized service. But at yeah. the same time, how meaningful is the how meaningful is it decentralized? Because um, again, you you pointed out the inferior risk and the potential if there was a government crackdown. It's not like with Bitcoin, where it's I think we're all in agreement it's impossible. For, for there to be a government crackdown on Bitcoin in terms of uh, you can you know, legislate against people using it, but you can't force, you can't switch all the nodes off on the network. Um, so how big a risk did you th- think this is? And, and do you think Ethereum is meaningfully decentralized or even should be considered as a decentralized project? I think it's a step towards decentralization. Uh, it's, it's more decentralized than you know some of the things that came before it. But it's it's less decentralized than it otherwise could be, and right. so I would actually describe. I think I think in some ways permissionless is a better way to describe it than decentralized, mm-hmm. because it's more decentralized for the user side, uh, and so you don't need permission to, for example, use DeFi. Uh, that so it's, it's permissionless for the user, and that's the that's the side of decentralization that it has improved, uh, and then the part that's still somewhat centralized is the clustering of you know the the infrastructure uh to provide that to users and so it's it's somewhat vulnerable to a government crackdown if you were to get kind of a, a focus on it you didn't even think it was worth putting a very small amount of your portfolio into it i mean maybe as a side bet uh you know i can see why like i even in the article i point out that you know 80 20 90 10 or 100 zero all make sense to me and you know my preference is to, f- to focus on Bitcoin at this time. I think the the risk reward is 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 good there. Now during a bull run, that doesn't mean I think that Bitcoin will be the best performing of of these these assets. I mean generally there will be various alts, perhaps Ethereum itself, that outperform Bitcoin to the upside, kind of like what we saw in 2020, where for example Ethereum outperformed Bitcoin. Uh, and so I even said in the article that if it goes over 1400 decisively, you know I wouldn't be surprised to see you know some pretty bullish action on Ethereum's price. Uh, the question is more about the long term value of that project and if they're going to successfully navigate some of those transitions from Ethereum 1.0 to Ethereum 2.0, it's kind of like changing the engine of a car while you're running it. So it's a very, it's a very complex challenge to do. And so this the risk reward is, is to me some extent less attractive. But I, yeah, I fully see why people want to have a you know, percentage of their portfolio in Ethereum 
people to just understand what they're getting into with these different assets. I think also it's the timing of the entry and exit, which is quite difficult. You know, it might outperform for a few months or it might outperform for a month here or a month there. For me, I just feel a lot more comfortable during a bull market to be up like fully in Bitcoin. Um, for me, it's too much of a risk. I mean, I'm not keen on the project, but I'm not like a full maxi opposed to anyone else investing if they want to, want to do that. I do see the value of the, the stable coins on the network, but yeah, it was quite interesting. What did you make of the reply from the bankless guys? Did, do you think they made a fair reply? Do you think they were kind of rationalizing things? Well, I think, you know, it always depends on your perspective. And so, you know, I think I think the, the most of them were very polite and they, you know, they basically put not forth all their, their reply. Yeah, not all of them. Uh, but you know, I think well, the bankless guys were uh, the 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 two that that run that that mm-hmm. platform. Uh, but you know, and you get down into the Twitterverse, and then sure, you get into the the far Thanks. less uh, plate, yeah, the less plate people. Um, but yeah, so part of their response didn't really refute the initial thing. I mean, some things they agreed with. They're like, it's experimental, but that's why you know you should invest now, and it'll go up more if it is successful. So it's kind of reframing it more towards that bullish view. Uh, I th- yeah, I think one of the, the big sticking points is whether or not the tokens will be monetized. And so, for example, there was a paper back in 2017 uh, by John Pfeffer uh, that yeah, argued that, that some of these, yeah, these utility protocols that, you know, the velocity can be so high if the tokens don't acquire some sort of moneyness uh, that even though the ecosystem could be very large, that not, you know, the market capitalization or the, or the per token value might not follow that that trajectory. And to some extent, that's what we've seen. For example, over the past three years, Ethereum's you know settlement volume went up dramatically and even outpaced Bitcoin, whereas its market capitalization is not caught up to that same degree. Uh, and so if you're looking at it from the Ethereum bullish side, you say, well, that's because Ethereum's undervalued and Ethereum's going to catch up and it's going to you know outperform. Uh, but if you're looking at it from that, say, that John Pfeffer view, uh, you're saying, no, that's to be expected because it's you know the tokens aren't money to the same degree that, say, Bitcoin is. And so the ecosystem can grow a lot faster than the than the per token value because there's higher velocity in the system. And the Ethereum counter argument to that is that, you know, uh, the combination of staking, if they get Ethereum 2.0 working, that's basically a liquidity sink. That's, a you know, an incentive to hodl for them uh, to earn yield. And two, that Ethereum can be used as collateral in these DeFi or, you know, these, these different sort of markets and that those would be sufficient liquidity sinks to basically monetize Ethereum, and so we'll, you know we'll see if that plays out or not. Uh, but because that's it's a somewhat more speculative thing because Ethereum 2.0 is not finished yet, uh, so staking is more of this kind of you know it's, it's one way staking at the moment where people are kind of putting into Ethereum 2.0 in the hopes that the developers will roll that out in a reasonable time frame in a year or two. And so you know it, it kind of remains to be seen to what extent these utility protocols can can uh, monetize. In in you know in the meantime, because we're seeing somewhat higher transaction fees on Ethereum, we are starting to see, for example, uh, you know more tether now transactions occur on Tron than on Ethereum because it, it, some of the smaller transactions have spilled over due to the high fees. Uh, and so we're seeing this competition between utility protocols at a time when Ethereum is kind of changing itself uh, substantially. And so I just, you know, I think there's, you know, there's certainly upside potential there, but there's also a lot of risk because unlike Bitcoin, that's, you know, it's mostly a steady state project that's just getting, you know, security and privacy updates over time. Uh, whereas Ethereum is still a, a rapidly evolving system. It's more of like a tech stock than like a money at the moment. Right. Okay. Well, I'm not going to invest. Anyway, Lynn, 
always lovely to catch up with you always learn so much um before we close out uh two things just tell people where they can sign up to your newsletter and uh give me a bitcoin price target for the year uh so i'm at lindalden.com people can check that out uh and so i don't have a firm price target in bitcoin however you know, the metrics still look you know quite attractive as far as kind of a mid-cycle bull run goes and so I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, well over 50,000 this year. And the the upper end of that is, you know, I like you hear some some of these really high targets and it is hard to uh, put those aside because, for example, you know, so far Bitcoin is outperforming its 2017 having, you know, 2016, 2017 having period. Uh, and it's so far kind of above that. And so we'll see if that if that that streak continues or not. And so rather than having kind of an end price target, uh, I just continue to monitor it as it goes. Fantastic. Well, listen, good to see you, and I will see you in uh, four weeks. Take care. Yep. Bye. Okay. What do you think of that one? Did you enjoy that one? I know you did. You all love Lynn. I love Lynn. She's fucking amazing. It's always good sitting down to her, especially when there's some crazy stuff going on that I need to pick her brain on with all this crazy stuff that's been going on with Wall Street bets. I really, really wanted her take. Also, with all the FUD around Tether, block reorgs, or just poor reporting in the mainstream media, it's good to hear that Lynn remains very bullish on Bitcoin, and she thinks we're mid-cycle. And if you're thinking of dipping into shitcoins or looking at Ethereum, make sure you read Lynn's economic analysis of Ethereum in her article. There's a link to that in the show notes. It may make you think twice. Anyway, Lynn will be back next month for another update. I'm sure we'll have a load more crazy shit to talk about. If you do have any questions about the show, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. As I say, I reply to everyone, so do feel free to reach out. I'm getting a lot of emails these days. Just don't send me any weird shit. Don't ask me uh, for any uh, investment or trading advice. But if you've got any other questions, do reach out to me. I will get back to you eventually. If you do want to support my show, please go over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. If you're not on apple uh pocket cast or stitcher they're all helpful they help with the ranking of the show so i'd appreciate it if you can do that also go and check out defiance as i said in the intro there's a really cool new show that was produced by tom there it's about the end of the drug war that's definitely worth checking out that's it defiance.news big weekend ahead some crazy shit's gonna go on i'm sure um, i will be back actually i'm back on sunday final show of the month i've got a show with willie Wu, so make sure you check that out have a great weekend love you all and i'll see you all soon